I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. This is The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. I've owned books and books and been a bookseller for over 35 years. What you're about to hear are conversations about all things literary, with writers, readers, publishers, old friends, new friends, and anyone who might wander into our store with an interesting story to tell about their connection to books, reading, or writing. These will be informal, over-the-backyard-fence kind of conversations, the kind I and booksellers everywhere have each and every day. This is what... Craig Pittman says about Craig Pittman. Craig Pittman is a native Floridian. Born in Pensacola, he graduated from Troy State University in Alabama, where his muckraking work for the student paper prompted an agitated dean to label him, quote, the most destructive force on campus. That I loved, Craig. That was great. <laughs> and I don't think he meant it as a compliment. No, I'm sure he didn't. <laughs> Since then, he's covered a variety of newspaper beats and quite a few natural disasters, including hurricanes, wildfires, and the Florida legislature, <laughs> which has doesn't disappoint even now. <laughs> no, no. Since 1998, gold. he has covered environmental issues for Florida's largest newspaper, the Tampa Bay Times. He's won state and national awards there as well. He's the author of lots of books, including The Scent of Scandal, Greed, Betrayal, and The World's Most Beautiful Orchid, which is, <laughs> which is the only book ever classified as true crime gardening. <laughs> <laughs> and Oh, Florida, How America's Weirdest State Influences the Rest of the Country, which won the gold medal for Florida nonfiction from the Florida Book Awards. His fifth book is why Craig is on The Literary Life today. Craig, welcome to The Literary Life. Thank you so much. A writer that we both love very much, which is Lauren Groff, and oh, I'm yes. sure you love her even more after what I'm about to read, yes. says of Cattail, in this era of bleak environmental news, Craig Pittman's Cattail 
comes as a witty and passionate reminder that nature is robust. It wants to live and that we humans with concerted effort, awareness of cynicism and profiteering and a certain ability to roll with frustration can do a great deal to reverse the course we're on. Pretty good. Yeah, yeah. I kind of wish she'd written the book. <laughs> <laughs> no, and I think that that is what your book does. I'm sure there are many, many others who thought as I did before I read this book that the Florida Panther, if not extinct, was almost extinct. So this book sort of tells the story about how that didn't happen, doesn't it? Right. Just It, just, it almost happened, and sort of at the last minute, they're able to reel them back from the brink. So tell us about that a little bit. Um, well, uh, the book starts off with a prologue, uh, about a, uh, a panther that is, uh, on display in Tallahassee and you don't know it from reading the little placard on it, but that's the most important panther that ever lived in Florida. Uh, it was the only one killed during the state's, uh, program to capture panthers and put, uh, radio collars on them. And, uh, at the time it seemed like a horrible tragedy. Um, but in the end, good things resulted from it. Um, and then the book kind of starts back with how the um, uh, original inhabitants of Florida regarded panthers. They venerated them. They thought they were the cat of God. Uh, the settlers were absolutely petrified of them and shot them on sight. Um, and then uh, things started to turn around. In 1981, Florida school children picked the panther as our official state animal. Right. And uh, then, But by 1995, they were virtually extinct. I mean, they were heading, heading for the drain, basically. And the only thing that saved them was a sort of a last ditch, unprecedented scientific experiment uh, that nobody knew if it would work or not. They were, you know, really had their had their fingers and toes crossed, and um, uh, it succeeded. But there were some other ramifications as a result of it that I don't think anyone was prepared for. No, and you go into that quite yes. quite extensively. Yeah, I, I enjoyed learning about why the panther was so revered. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about that. What was it about? I mean, they're beautiful animals. They are. They're, they're gorgeous animals. And um, uh, the uh, early inhabitants of Florida, the Calusa, the Tocobaga, et cetera, they thought that uh, the panther was a divine being. It was, you know, a silent hunter, uh, very, as you mentioned, very beautiful, uh, but very deadly. And um, they, the, uh, the Seminoles uh, regarded it as the first creature that was made by the, the, the Great Spirit. Because they lived in the Everglades. Yes. The Panther. And, yes. And, and uh, in fact, uh, all of their medicine men were supposed to be descendants. They're part of the, the Panther clan, in fact. Um, and uh, they, they just, of course, when you get up to the areas where it's a little cooler, uh, their reverence didn't extend to not turning them into coats in the right. wintertime, you know, it's right. good for warmth. But um, um, there's a uh, uh, an artifact that they found on Marco Island in 1895 uh, called the Key Marco Cat. That's obviously this object of veneration, but it's from the waist down, it's a kneeling female figure, but from the waist up, it's cl- very clearly a panther. Mm. Uh, in but, fact, talk about where they, how, how far north sure, are they? Sure, they, uh, they're, until recently, they were very largely contained uh, south of the Fort Myers area, and primarily in the the Big Cypress uh, swamp area, that was sort of their last stronghold. They've been driven out of everything else. Um, and I should add that they're the last uh, puma species east of the Mississippi. They've been completely wiped out in most of the other states. That I didn't know. Yeah. Um, and so when I came down to work for the what was then the St. Petersburg Times, now the Tampa Bay Times, 
uh, and to cover environmental issues in 1998, one of the first stories I wrote about was a panther story. And the more stories I wrote about panthers, the more I learned about them. And I thought this would make a great book. You know, it's got these these vivid, uh, odd characters. Uh, there's lots of twists and turns in the plot, but it didn't have an ending. I needed an ending. You can't, you know, you can't really write a book unless you figure out where it's going to go. And uh, finally, about three years ago, I had an ending. I got an ending that I thought could work. So I sat down to write the book. But I've, I, I've got about 20 years of research that went into this and, you know, about a year of writing. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a, and, and, you know, Craig, you write so beautifully that you really bring it to life in a way that uh, no one out there should think of it as being a um, strictly academic book in no. any sense of the word. Uh, I tried very hard to make it not a, not a science book, but, right. a, but a, a character-driven book. Character-driven, lots of characters, yeah, yeah. as we tend to have in this state. Yes. <laughs> and I also love the illustrations. You found some really wonderful illustrations Thank in you. as well. Thank you. I, I, the, the picture I'm proudest of is the one that was shot of the very first state panther capture. And it's got two of the most important characters in the book in that photo. Uh, Deborah Jansen, um, who was there in 1981 and is still working on panther issues today at Big Cypress, and Roy McBride, who is definitely one of the one of the uh, most interesting and unusual characters I've ever written about, the the sort of grizzled Texas tracker who was brought in first to find out if there still were panthers in Florida. Tell tell, tell me, you know, uh, you came, you wrote for the uh, at that time the St. Petersburg Times. You were covering the environment in the '90s into the turn of the century. What has changed? What have you seen? What, what is your, your feeling about it? I mean, Florida has always been kind of at the vanguard of environmental yeah. issues mm -hmm. because of what you talk about, the hurricanes that we've had, right. you know, now that we're dealing with climate change issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What's changed, if I, anything? I think the biggest change may be in public attitude. Um, I think starting with the 2010 oil spill that left oil on the beaches in eight counties up in the Panhandle, and then with the big red tide uh, algae bloom that we had that went on for 16 months more recently, I think people are starting to realize that in Florida, the environment is the economy. And if you screw up the environment, you're going to screw up the economy. I mean, those those eight panhandle counties, they're still dealing with the aftermath of that 2010 oil spill. Uh, and people who were in the area where the red tide algae bloom was, they, are, they flinch anytime you even mention red tide. They pay... They're watching it now the way they watched, uh, you know, hurricane uh, predictions. Well, what also interests me a lot is the fact that you're still able to write for a newspaper. Well, yeah, that's pretty rare. Yeah, well, well, I don't mean just a newspaper, <laughs> but but that they have someone assigned to the environment. Those stories do remarkably well, though. I mean, yeah. uh, the public really responds to them, which is is very heartening. I mean, our our readers are really keenly interested in this stuff, and especially if you can tell them something that they don't know that they, you know, you're not writing the same story. Everybody's writing and you're not telling them about stuff they've seen on TV, but you're saying, here's something that you, you don't know about and you should know about it. You know, um, as you've been traveling, talking about this book, um, how have the audiences reacted? Um, they ask a lot of really sharp questions. I mean, it's, it's clear that the people who are coming to hear about this book are, are people who have read about, panthers before and are concerned about them and not just because everybody loves cats you know i mean not the movie but you know <laughs> uh 
And they and some of them have actually asked a couple of questions that I had to go back and research before I knew the answer to right. them, so I'd be ready next time. But that's good. That means they're really engaged, not just with the book, but with the issue in general. And and that's a heartening thing. So what, without any spoiler, uh, you know, without without any spoilers, that's right. Being this is given a spoiler-free away, podcast. I don't want to, you know, because I want people to buy the book right. and read it. But yeah. what Lauren alludes to there is that we can learn lessons from the way the yes. uh, the Florida Panther had been saved. Can you kind of uh, summarize a few of those um, for us? Well, one is that, you know, this is, this is you know, scientists talk about charismatic megafauna, and this is sort of the definition of that. This is a beautiful animal. People are emotionally invested in it. It's on our license plates. It's the, the mascot of numerous schools. It's a hockey team. Um, and so people are people are really aware of panthers and they're really invested in them. And it took a tremendous, tremendous effort and an extraordinary effort to save them from going extinct. And so if that's what it takes to save one charismatic species, what's it gonna what are we gonna have to do to save one that's not as pretty and not as uh well known? Um, you know, because we do have a lot of endangered species in Florida. We've got key deer. We've got, um, um, you know, uh, I think gopher tortoises are, are um, they're not endangered, but they are threatened. Um, the manatee is now considered threatened instead of endangered. But it takes a lot of effort and a lot of people paying attention, a lot of people doing extraordinary things to save these things. And, and sometimes it takes a change in the way we live our lives. I mean, with panthers, the, their biggest predator now are cars. And so... Um, uh, one way to deal with that is to build underpasses under the interstate, but each one costs about a million four, so that's not cheap. Right. On the other hand, we could all just slow down. Right, exactly. <laughs> that's exactly right, isn't yeah. it? Well, you're talking about saving species. Now, you know, what will it take, if, if that's hard, Yeah. what does it take to save the world? In a sense? <laughs> well, yeah. You know, when you talk about, I think yesterday, I don't know, whenever anyone's listening to this, um, it was something like 65 degrees in Antarctica. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If in saving the panther, we're talking about saving a species, and you explain ex explain really well about the difficulty that it would take to save even another species. Mm -hmm. The amount of birds that we've lost in yeah. the last year or two oh, yeah. are terrible. You know, it's right. like well, I mean, off the charts. Before the panther, we had the dusky seaside sparrow, which right. uh, was doing fine till till. Um, Disney and NASA came along and wiped out most of its habitat. And when they finally realized something was wrong, there were only five left. And they thought, oh, well, we better do a captive breeding program, except it was too late because all five were males. Uh. So the last dusky seaside sparrow died at Disney World. And, you know, that sort of haunted the people trying to save the panther. Like, we can't let this happen to the state animal. Yeah, and they didn't. And yeah. and it was a capture program yeah. to a large extent that saved them. I yeah. Well, I like to tell people that it was the school children yeah. that saved them. If they had not picked them as the state animal, they wouldn't have had the high profile that they had. And how many high schools have the Panthers there? Yeah. I mean, exactly. hundreds probably. Exactly. Um, but I guess I'm looking at the larger issue. And, and as a as an, a writer of, of you know environmental uh covering the environment mm -hmm. i saw somewhere online i think it was on a it was on a one of these high-tech newsletters um might have been even something like cnet or something and as they tend to do they have headlines to grab you so that oh, yeah. you will 
click and mm-hmm. write the, you know, read the article. And, and this had a headline that certainly grabbed me. Mm-hmm. The entire headline and what was in the um, subject line mm-hmm. was Miami is fucked. <laughs> that was the headline and that was what was written about. Uh-huh. And it was all about, um, all about climate change and right. what was happening. Mm-hmm. How do you see that from where you sit as a reporter now? Not only about Miami, but right. you know about the state, about where we're heading. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, what do you, what do you think? Uh, political will or no political will to the, change things? There's a lot of talk about it. Uh, I don't think we've seen yet whether there's political will. Uh, you know, we went through eight years where you weren't even supposed to mention the term climate change. We now have a governor who he's still a little shy about saying the words, but he's he has appointed some people to look into it. So that's a nice start. Uh, we'll see what happens when they start making recommendations about changing things. Uh, and it's interesting that, you know, we talk about, oh my God, what can we do? Well, okay, what's causing climate change? Fossil fuels. So in order to make sure that this at least slows down, maybe we should stop using so many fossil fuels. That seems like common sense, right? And yet at the same time, the state legislature pushed through this bill that said, we're going to build three gigantic new toll roads through Florida for lots more cars and trucks to drive around on and produce more greenhouse gases. So, you know, there's a real disconnect between the rhetoric and the actions that we're, we're taking. And I, I mentioned the toll roads too, because one of them, uh, the one that will retrace what's supposed to be the Heartland Parkway, cuts through Panther Habitat in oh, it does. Collier County. Yeah, it's a, wow. the Fish and Wildlife Service. Uh, we got some records. One of my colleagues got some records from there where a biologist was saying this is going to be a major threat to the future of the Florida Panther if they build this new toll road, because of course it's going to stimulate new development all along the route as well. If I'm not mistaken as well, I read somewhere recently that um, EPA restrictions have been lifted on a lot of uh, a lot of wetlands right. and a lot of natural preserves yes. as well. They want to make it easier for developers to develop. To develop. But that tends, especially with wetlands, that means you're going to make it easier to wipe out the things that recharge our aquifer. And what are we going to do for drinking water then? Drinking water and also areas that protect yeah. inland areas from hurricanes. And, right, and exactly. We're losing, we're losing wetlands in Louisiana. Oh, a football you know, field the, a day, basically. The, yeah. yeah, by the day. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, you know, we both have children and mm-hmm. it's something that we both look at and think about a lot. I know I do and I know you do. Um, and it just seems so frustrating. And it must be from where you sit even that much more frustrating well, in a sense. But remember, if you save the environment, I got nothing to write about, right? (laughs) No, no, you did a very good job about writing about how we saved the band. Okay, there you go. So there's your book. You got me. Okay. (laughs) Well, I want to change the subject just a little bit, and I really want to embarrass the hell out of you (laughs) because that's tough to do. In doing a little bit of research about you, I came across the fact that you are. You've been designated as a Florida literary legend. Allegedly a legend. Allegedly a legend. (laughs) I know that it embarrasses you, but um, it's really interesting. Uh, I figure they ran out of other people. I'll read a little bit of this article where I (laughs) discovered it. Um, Craig Pittman did not expect to be named a Florida literary legend. I have this t-shirt that says Zora and Eudora and Harper and Flannery. They're the legends, he says. I'm the guy that buys the t-shirt. <laughs> That's true. The board of the Florida Heritage Book Festival begs to differ. They named 
Pittman, the award-winning environmental reporter for the Tampa Bay Times and the author of five books, their 2020 Florida literary legend on October 6th. You're going to be receiving the award in just a few weeks, yeah. so that's fantastic. I'm, I'm hoping it's a big medal I can wear around my neck, like Flavor Flav. Yeah, I can't wait to show up at work that way. <laughs> well, at least it, you know, at least you'll get some cred with your kids. Yeah, that's the way it usually <laughs> yeah, works. Right. But I mean, when you think they of the other care. ones that they've they've mentioned, it's Edna, Edna Buchanan, Michael yeah. Connolly, Harry mm-hmm. Cruz, mm-hmm. Tim Dorsey, Michael Gannon, Carl Hyacin, Stetson Kennedy, who I love, mm-hmm. who's great. Mm-hmm. Florida writer Peter Matheson, Patrick Smith, and Randy Wayne White. I mean, that's quite a list. It is. It is. But I can think of people more worthy. I mean, Edwidge Danticat to me is a literary list. She's definitely a literary yeah. And, and, yeah. and you and mentioned Judy, right Bloom is, Judy Bloom as yes. well. Yes. No, there's a lot of literary legends, but mm-hmm. I'm just glad that they named you one. Well, thank you. As, as well. And um, I have to update my resume. Well, and, and <laughs> something I want to talk to you about too is you are someone who is interested in so many things um, beyond the environment. I know that you're a big, big reader of crime novels. Yes. And you wrote this fantastic piece on uh, someone we both loved and admired, Charlie Williford. Yes. Who wrote now, there's a literary Blues. legend. Now, there's is, a literary legend. That is a literary legend, <laughs> yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Um, they don't have a posthumous award, I guess, do they? Uh, I don't think they, they do probably anymore. should. They, it's hard to get them to get up and speak when they're like, <laughs> <laughs> they're looking Charlie for Charlie might be able to figure out right. a way. But um, talk about him a little bit. Sure. Um, uh, he's the most amazing Florida man I've ever written about, honestly. I mean, what an what a incredible life he had. Um, even before he started writing the books he's best known for. I mean, you know, he was a, uh, what, a hobo, a teacher, uh, an artist, an art critic. Um, and I'm just kind of scratching the surface here. And, and he wrote these, these wonderful pulp novels early on. He wrote this terrific memoir. Uh, and um, he's he, wrote, just, uh, he wrote two of them, right? Two of them, yeah, yeah. Like it's like okay, what you left stuff out of the first yeah, one, know. <laughs> you know? And then uh, uh, and then he wrote this magnificent book, Miami Blues, introducing this terrific character. Toward the end of his life, yes, toward the end of his life, Hope Mosley, yeah, this leisure suit wearing detective with the Miami Police, who's you know he's not exactly bright, but he does figure things out, and uh, and it's 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 a hysterically funny book, and then followed it with three great sequels. And I'm just sorry that he wasn't able to give us a fifth one. I guess his wife told me he was working on one where Hope Mosley's I, you know, in, that's in internal I, affairs. Right, that's something great. I didn't know about. Oh, actually. man, that would have been great. I mean, lots of comic possibilities yeah. with that. But but bo- both funny, but also very insightful about South Florida and how it was changing at the time. Completely. Yeah. And he fought against that change. He mm-hmm. didn't like the change very much, Yeah, I don't think. But he was he he was a poet. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, he was kind of like a he was a so he had so much to give. And and what you wrote about when he was teaching um, at one campus of was it Miami Dade College? I think so. Yeah. At the other campus was James Lee Burke. Right. Yeah. Which I thought was that's, really that's really that's an interesting. You know what's really interesting? One day I was invited. To come and uh, he had just died. It was um, forgetting his name, but I think he was one of the early book editors at the Miami Herald. Oh, okay. and he had a library. And mm-hmm. this, I'm talking maybe 20 years ago. Someone asked me to come and look at the library that mm-hmm. he had. Right. And I went through it, and the people he had reviewing for mm-hmm. him at that time, 
like James Jones, Charlie Williford, right. <laughs> James Lee Burke, and he had signed copies of all of wow. these guys' books. That's and he had art. He had their reviews within the books as oh well. My. A fascinating uh, yeah. library. And, um, and we should mention that that uh, his book, The Burned Orange Heresy, which is about an art heist, is now been made into a new movie, and right. it's uh, it's come out, and people should go see that. They should, it, although they changed the location from yeah, Miami. I was, I was sad about that. To yeah. Lake Como. <laughs> yeah, I guess they thought Italy would be more cosmopolitan. Well, I guess it's also it's Italian uh, backers who yeah. put it out. Yeah. But Mick Jagger's in it, right? And it's got an amazing Donald Sutherland. Donald Sutherland. Yeah. So we're really looking forward to seeing that as well, and. Um, I know that you're working on a piece on uh, Elmore Leonard. Yes, which, Elmore Leonard in Florida. Which uh, I'm be- looking forward to. Because his researcher says his Florida books were the ones that really made him famous, made him a big star. And I, and, and he created some of his best characters here. I mean, uh, Raylan Givens, who went on to be in the TV show Justified, started out as a marshal in Florida in two of his books. Um, uh, Chili Palmer from, uh, right. uh, uh, from Get Shorty. Miami Loan Shark originally. Yep. Uh, uh, Karen Sisko in Out of Sight, uh, played by Jennifer Lopez in the movie version. Also a Florida. When you do book. this deep dive into a writer like that, do you reread their books? Oh, yeah. Oh, I'm rereading a lot of Elmer Leonard books now. And some of them uh, I'd completely forgotten the plot. I'm reading Cat Chaser now, yeah. which is really interesting because the guy, the main guy, owns this dumpy little motel on the beach. And uh, one of the reasons Elmer Leonard started writing Florida books is because he had bought his mother a dumpy little motel on Pompano beach. And, uh, and so he got, I think he did a lot of his, you know, research for that just by coming down to visit his mom and writing about what it's like to, to run one of those little old, I think hers was like a four unit motel on the beach and she lived in one and rented out the other ones. And, uh, and there's some, just some great description about, you know, being on the beach, hearing the surf pounding and, you know, that kind of thing. And de- nice details about running a motel. That was his special sauce, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, Really getting getting people's language down oh, yeah. and dialogue down. And well, and when detail. I interviewed his researcher, he said, you know, one of the reasons the Florida books did so well is because there were so many crazy characters and odd things that happened. He said, but all of those were based on real life. Right. Um, uh, there's uh, in the opening of um, Rum Punch, which was made into the movie Jackie Brown, um, the first line is about the first section is about a uh, a white power clan nazi rally marching down worth avenue in palm beach and his researcher said i was there i videotaped it that right. actually happened right yeah no well that's the i mean i i guess i see a straight line i don't know if you agree but i do see a straight line from charlie and and elmore leonard to Carl Hyacinth oh, yeah. and James W. Hall and yeah. Tim Dorsey, mm-hmm. that whole idea of black humor, of using sure. black dark humor. Oh, yeah. But yet it's not that far from the truth. No, no. In fact, uh, there's a quote from from uh, Charles Williford who said, if you write the truth, they'll accuse you of using black humor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I just did that. Yeah. But it, it's really true. Mm-hmm. You know, I, and Carl, used, Carl Hyacinth would always say, you know, I would tell these stories to my editor in New York and they would never believe it. These could not possibly happen. No, he always and then, says he would, he, he then he would send them an article about right. where it actually yeah, happened. Yeah, he doesn't make anything up. He just reads the paper. Right. <laughs> it's really something. So we both grew up on opposite ends of the state. I yes. grew up in Miami. You grew up in the Panhandle. Yeah, Pensacola. So what was it like growing up in Pensacola in um, the 60s and 70s? It was, it was a great place to grow up, uh, although I felt kind of isolated from what was going on in the rest of the world. Uh, but there were... Uh, lots of places to go fishing and hunting with my dad, to go camping with my, my Boy Scout troop. And, um, 
Um, Is that where you got your love for the environment? Yeah, and it wasn't until my great aunt introduced me to John D. MacDonald. I was 14, and she said, she saw I'd been reading, you know, Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler, and she said, took a drag on her palm all and said, I think you're ready for Travis McGee now. (laughs) And and she hands me this book with a scantily clad woman on the cover. I'm like, yes, ma'am, I am ready for that. Uh, But I started reading it and started reading about these environmental things that he kind of slipped into his thrillers. And it's the first time I realized that A, that there were shady people in the Sunshine State, and B, that some of those people were targeting places that I loved and that they were changing it. And, and, and that had when, never occurred to me. Was it when you got to college that you decided that journalism was a route for you? I, I wanted to write. That was the one thing I knew is I wanted to write. And it seemed like journalism would be a way to get a lot of practice at it and learn about the world. And I figured, I'll do that five years and then I'll write the great American novel. That that plan didn't work out. Might but, that come? <laughs> well, I've got a novel I've been working on, um, and it's on the third rewrite so far. And I hope I hope some publisher likes it this time, but we'll see. Is it a bit of a mystery as well? It is a it's a mystery, and it's uh, it's a sort of a Hyacinth style Florida tale too. Um, the title is Death of a Dolphin, and it opens with uh, people discovering that the most famous dolphin since Flipper uh, has been killed, and so the one of the two protagonists takes it to the marine mammal pathology lab in St. Petersburg, which is a real institution. And they do a necropsy there and discover that a, the dolphin was shot and B it has a human thumb inside one of its stomachs. I'm ready. Okay. <laughs> I'm ready. I think You're that the publishers Mitchell wants this book. <laughs> no, it sounds, it sounds great. I mean, we could talk, we should do another, we should do another, um, show of uh, a podcast just around Florida writers. Oh, yeah. Oh, there's so, so who, many. So who are you reading these days? Uh, besides Omar Leonard, um, yeah. uh, I just started uh, Madeline Miller's The Song of Achilles. I really liked Circe uh, when Cersei I read that. was great. It's awesome. And and so I, I said, well, I want to read the other one, too. So. so mythology is something that interests you, too. I read, you know, I read Bullfinch's mythology when I was a kid um, and uh, was fascinated by it. And reading Circe kind of revived that. Um, it's, and it's funny, I think mythology's kind of getting fashionable again, I guess. Uh, my kids went through all of the Percy Jackson books. I think and that's loved part those. of it. And, and one of them even said, I'd like to know more. And so I found him a sort of a kid's book of, right. of, uh, of myths and legends. And we both agreed that we loved the one about Odysseus and the, and the Cyclops. That's our favorite one. And, and I, <laughs> I, I've, yeah, that's, that's a yeah, isn't that great one. <laughs> but I, I've, you know, if you ever get a chance to hear Madeline speak, she's, oh, well, I, I mean, she's amazing because she really is a personification of, of Bullfinch's mythology, wow, I think that's great. She knows it all, and yeah. she she's so enthusiastic about yeah. it as well. Um, and uh, for nonfiction, I just finished Simon Montgomery's *The Soul of an Octopus*, which oh, was really interesting. Good. I try and read a, a fiction book and a nonfiction book at the same time, and that and that, that would certainly be up your alley. Yeah, definitely. In definitely. terms of the, uh, *Lab Girl*, was really good too by Hope Jarin. I'm probably uh-huh. pronouncing her name. No, right. no, that's, I really like that. Those are great books. Craig, I'd love it if you could read a little bit from Cattail. Sure, I'd be glad to. Uh, This is from the uh, the prologue called Cat Under Glass. The panther ran as fast as it could. The dogs gave chase, plowing through the underbrush, howling with delight. This was what they were bred to do, to sniff out and chase down big cats like this one. Their master, the tall man in the cowboy hat, would be pleased. The female panther they pursued was a scrawny thing, seriously underweight. It wasn't strong enough to keep the chase going long. Finally, it leaped onto a tree trunk and clawed its way up to a branch, then stopped to look down. The dog circled the trunk, 
panting, their eyes trained on their quarry up above. Then the cat heard more noises approaching, a group of humans, all but one of the men. One of the men climbed partway up the tree with a gun, then raised it and fired. The cat flinched. A dart hit it in the leg, and everything went dark. Then the cat was falling. When it hit the ground, it didn't move again. One of the men, and then the lone woman, bent over it. They put their lips on the panther's hairy mouth, blowing their breath into its lungs, trying to revive it with mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. They were too late. Again, thanks, Craig. My pleasure. 